0: Welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and our metagaming group. I am Trey Alsop and I am your host for this episode. Today I am joined by the meta philosophical gamer, Dimitri Portnoy. Welcome.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to my meta world.
0: Here we are in the Game Brain meta universe with Dimitri. Uh, this is round 13, turn two. And today we are going to review the 2014 game Panamax.
1: And expand on what uh, Tom and Jennifer said about metagaming uh, as we practice it in Game Brain.
0: That, that is an excellent summary. I was going to go with the uh, opposite or a, another episode uh, title of uh, or how I learned to quit worrying and love metagaming.
1: Uh, well, technology. yes. Uh, if you're into Doctor Strange Love or Strange Love in general, uh, that that certainly fits
0: the theme. Yeah. So this is, uh, yeah, we're doing a little bit of a reaction video um, based upon last week's episodes, where we wanted to expand on some uh, concepts that that Tom uh, and Jennifer introduced. Uh, just because I think uh, we both listened to that episode and like wanted to jump in on the conversation. On, into the meta conversation.
1: Yes, and, and if you will. I thought, if only I could say something. And then I realized, wait a minute, we have the tools.
0: We have the technology. We can re argue this.
1: Yes. But it's not an argument. Think of it more less as a sequel, a supplement, an expansion. Uh, Tom talked about metagaming as uh, purely PvP, player versus player skills that one player can use to persuade another player to act in the first player's best interest. There's much more to it in addition to that. Tom said everything right, but he left out quite a bit.
0: You're saying you have thoughts on this, and we are, we are going to get to that.
1: We but will, how, but first. Trey, but first. How do you feel? How do you feel about where we are? Uh, as a game group, uh, now that we've been meeting for a couple months in person, um, how do you feel about the world? How do you feel about what's happening around us?
0: Um, I, I'm fine, Dimitri. I'm, I'm happy to have our, our game group and uh, the meals that we <laughs> sometimes join each other for before a game, before game group. Well. When when uh, everything goes well, but no, yes, I value our all of our uh, our friendships and the uh, the you know the times that we can get together as friends. It's it's definitely great to be back, even as uh, things seem to tighten up again. I, as, I feel
1: like I'm in the twenty ninth mile of a marathon. You know where I've I've had my collapse. I've gotten my second wind. Everybody was cheering. The finishing line is in sight. And I'm still running it, and I don't know where I am at this point.
0: Have you, um, have you run a number of marathons, Dimitri? Is uh,
1: that... I, I, I walked several marathons.
0: <laughs> if pretty much every day you walk a marathon, uh,
1: uh, not quite as much. I, 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 on average, I walk uh, a marathon every three days or so.
0: It's, yes, in case people don't know, Dimitri is a big is a big walker and in in a city which is famous for people not walking within it, uh Dimitri d- goes on very long walks over many different parts of the city. Yeah. And I, often call I, I, will call you up and say, Can you pick me up in you know Brentwood? That was a terrible accent, but well, there's it's tons a where-
1: terrible accent. And uh, basically sometimes yes. Uh if we, uh, people want to see me. Uh, this moment, I- I'm very often out and away from my car. All right,
0: are you di- are you ready, Dimitri? I'm not sure. I don't want to rush you, but are oh, you ready to re- are you ready to recap last night's um... game, game night? night. Yes, game absolutely. Night. We- Let- let's roll the music. <laughs> so, for some reason, all of the uh, sound effects are looping. Now, so we were getting multiple multiple game nights there. All right, so what did, what did we play last night, Dimitri?
1: Uh, we played Panamax, uh, which is the game that we're going to review. We played Quest, uh, which is one of my games on the brain, which I'm going to be talking about. Uh, and uh, Versailles 1919 was something that was played by the other half of... Uh, the game group, um, I didn't pay attention to it. I was seated with my back to the players. I was shocked, shocked uh, to know, to learn that there are dice in that game. Uh, it's a negotiation game, and and it surprised me. It surprised me that it would have dice in it. Trey, how do you feel? I, I yeah. know you... In general, you have uh, strong feelings about dice and random output. But do you have any specific feelings about dice in a in a historically themed non-war game, or I would even say an anti-war game, a peace game?
0: Uh, I was very eager to play that game. I'm still eager to play that game. I think it's it, uh, I think it's mostly going to be about. Uh, negotiation um, and so I, I'm not going to judge the the dice in that game at this time what I would say is our game was interrupted a number of times where suddenly all four members of the other group kind of at the same time went oh after you know the sound of you know dice being spilled on the table so if if the rolling of a dice generates a moment where the entire table goes oh that seems like that's kind of doing what Dice are supposed to do to kind of generate those emotional moments, memorable moments?
1: Our our fellow Game Brain member, Candice, um, uh, is very enthusiastic about that game. Uh, She's been talking about it, I I think, for three months. And and I am enthusiastic uh, about anything Candice is enthusiastic about. I don't quite have her energy. But uh, no, no I,
0: one does. No one does.
1: Exactly. But Versailles 1919 is an exciting theme. Uh, certainly I've heard about Versailles 1919 for a long time.
0: And it's my understanding that uh, that Tom won that game?
1: Uh, with seven points? I thought he lost it.
0: Wait, he, Tom came in last is what you're saying? With only seven points and that the winning score was something like 50 by another player? Is that Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, unless we're playing estates where the winning score during last game night was zero uh, with our friend David Gillison, uh, it's hard. It's hard to uh, know what a a score of seven is. A score of seven is a pretty decent score in bus, but judging (laughs) from the color of Tom's uh, face, uh, and it and, and and the quality of his uh, the tenor of his voice, I, I hmm. think he lost. And I think every. I'm sure season,
0: it was because of the dice rolls. It, it had to be because of the dice
1: rolls. Well, he did say that every one of them went against him. Like like if he would win on anything but a six, a six would inevitably come up, according to Tom. Right.
0: Yes, so th- I think this game was won. The game was won by Nick, and then we played Panamax, and um, I believe Quest. you won that game of Panamax. And, uh, and you I won
1: the game of Panamax. Yes,
0: Surprised I think you actually you stood up and actually said, "I won a game."
1: I won a game last night. It was You're... the second game I won that night. Uh, technically, we won Quest.
0: Uh, but Technically, no, yes, we quest. did. We did win Quest. Okay, so you're saying we're going to revisit Quest later. Uh, so I, I should will, not.
1: And you're welcome to jump in. All
0: right, that sounds good. But yes, we had an excellent uh, game night last night. We went a little bit late because Panamax isn't the quickest game, but uh, we finished it and had a great time. So why don't we get to the news?
2: Good evening, Mr. Mister North of South America. All the and at sea, Let's go to press.
1: Clap. Hey.
0: Okay, I believe we are a board gaming podcast, but we do have an item here that is a role-playing note. Um, Magpie Games uh, is launched on Kickstarter, an avatar role-playing game. And I think this is already breaking all kinds of records here. So just wanted to get that on people's... A lot of people are avatar friends. This is the animated series, not the Jim Cameron thing but uh, this is on Kickstarter and I know I have a lot of friends signing up for this and just bringing it to the attention of our extended gaming family here that go check out avatar legends a role-playing game by magpie games that's on Kickstarter right now um, we also had this weekend was the release of the new version of descent from fantasy flight games did you play have you played descent before the older version Dimitri?
1: Uh, No, I don't think I have.
0: So this is the kind of classic dungeon crawling game from Fantasy Flight um, that's been very popular, and I think it's had multiple versions of it before, or at least expansions. And what this version of Descent is, if I understand it correctly, is uh, we were talking about, I think, a couple weeks ago, Mansions of Madness, and like, why haven't more games used an app in order to run the game? Well, now Descent has an, an app to help uh run the run the game and that's part of what this new version of descent is is doing is is it's it's got a highly uh detailed uh, app that helps you run the game and reveal content as you go through it so we thought that would be a trend it didn't seem to be taking off but here it is with descent and so this is a big release from fantasy flight and it went live this weekend
1: I want to do a little bit of philosophizing about both role-playing games uh, and app-based games. Uh, And I I think that there's not a good fit with Game Brain uh, when we play either of those games, uh, even though Matt uh, and Alfred and Tom, of course, are huge fans of role-playing games. And we enjoyed our plays of uh, Mansions of Madness. But one of the things we often do, and this goes to our game meta, is when we play board games, we often narrate our moves and analyze the game mechanics uh, and how our own tactics and strategies as players as we play. Uh, And when you're in character in a role-playing game or when you are listening to what an app is telling you, it's very hard to have that parallel conversation happening uh, above the board. Um, And uh, for us, I I think several of us who depend on that conversation, we feel constrained uh, by those types of games.
0: Interesting theory. I think it is is the case that when you play Dungeons & Dragons or games like that, a lot of times you do kind of pivot between these different modes of like, I'm in character for certain things I say, and then I'm out of character. You know, for example, when you say, you know, roll to hit, roll for initiative, you know, what are your modifiers for that? So you do kind of toggle between these these modes all the time so are you so what do you like what is it about our group that would you're you're are you kind of under the understanding that like you're supposed to be in character the entire time when, when you
1: when you're playing a role-playing game and you step out of character for that uh it always feels like a little bit of a of, of a jolt it of always, a cheat? Y- yep. yes whereas playing a board game what happens above the board uh can flow pretty much continuously w- 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 without encountering an obstacle. Like, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, I don't have to switch modes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and- think what you're talking about is, I, th- I think I think you've, you've got a valid point. I think you're talking, it depends upon the game, right? It depends on the game and the game system. And I think what you're talking about may be much more the case in certain LARPs and LARPing where you're acting out and you're playing a character and actually like breaking character or going out of character could be even like a little bit rude in certain circumstances. Whereas I think there's plenty of people that grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons and honestly never went into character. All they did is like, they're narrating what they're doing and like, maybe they'll do a funny voice when they, but oftentimes they'll say like, I try to persuade the king you know, and I'm using my you know such and such skill, and I have a plus three modifier, and there's always kind of like a debate about like well, why don't you just say what you want to say, and then we'll we'll roll we'll roll to see if you're successful it's like i okay. use my I use my charms on them i'm I'm very persuasive with my persuasion skill
1: uh that that's so funny uh my friends always insisted uh on staying in character. And I was often uh, made fun of for not being able to stay in character. Uh, I remember very vividly once I, uh, saying, I'm using my telepathic powers. Uh, and they said, well, Dmitri, what exactly are you doing? I mean, how are you using uh, your telepathic powers? Like, show us. Uh, and I put my index fingers to my temples and, and made the boo 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 sound. And and, and that was not forgotten for the next uh, two years of junior high. Um, Every time I would see one of my friends in the hallway when at lunch, they would do that motion. They would put their index fingers to their temples and, and make the poo 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 motion with their lips.
0: Thank you for reliving that trauma. With us and, and sharing, Dimitri. I think it, that does explain a lot
1: I, I, about I your, your it, views that. on role-playing. Yes. Yes. Uh, and also my
2: childhood.
0: In general, yes. Alright, next, next item. Uh, we have a new game um, from Alexander Fister. You know Alexander Fister games like Great Western Trail and Maracaibo. Great has Western a new-
1: Trail is our favorite uh, game at Gameplay. Yes, uh, the,
0: uh, the games ranked uh, from all of the members of game Brain putting their list together, yes, number one turned out to be Great Western Trail. Um, Fister has a new game called Boone Lake. Uh, they're currently doing a pre-order for it. It's going to run through September 30th. Uh, this game's going to be available in the U.S. in mid-November. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it plays. You're like a group of pioneers.
1: A group of pioneers collaborating, you pick uh, what role you're going to fill in the community uh, and, and how you're going to help. Uh, and so you almost have a, have a secret objective uh, that kind of, that helps everyone. Look, it's fisted. it's Capstone. Uh, it says it has brand new mechanisms. It has asymmetric play. Uh, so th- that, that that's almost... You're in,
0: huh? You're in. They had yeah, you at Fister, I
1: mean, we're in, right? I can't imagine that this wouldn't be a game that we'd be interested in. Now, it might turn out another Dark Angel, uh, a game that Matt uh, was looking forward to a lot. I was to, looking forward to. I was looking forward to that, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but this so is uh, there's nothing there's here nothing not to get excited about.
0: I agree. So we are going to look forward to boon lake and i'm sure play it and uh communicate to everybody here as soon as we find out more about it in other fister news we just wanted to um there is an expansion to maracaibo that is coming soon called the uprising which i think is trying to address some of the criticisms of the you know the treatment of colonialism in the base game we will see how that uh, goes but in this one the players are cast as indigenous people under colonial bondage who will work together to liberate the cities of their island from foreign rule uh, quote in the cooperative scenario they win when all locations are free end quote said said Alexander Fister. so that's a quote from Fister about the game so we'll see see how that see how that goes don't know Uh you have a thought
1: uh, no uh, I don't. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think of Algiers. That 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 movie uh, that is very interesting. That takes place during the Algiers uh, uprising uh, against the French uh, in the sixties. Uh, I, in general, um, I I enjoy so many uh, anti-colonialist books mm-hmm. uh, and a bit of anti-colonialist theater. I don't know if a board game can be so politically um, directed. Uh, we, we can I, I, I don't know I, I don't know what kind of whether the moral lessons that we learn from a board game uh, are under the artistic philosophical control of the designer.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying at the at the end there. This sounds like a good topic for a member segment at some point. I think there, I think games definitely have politics and messages, whether they 're intended or not that's which is why like when you said at the end like what what the what the uh, designer intends and what people take away and the way that they use games, those are completely separate things, but games can absolutely be propaganda um, uh,
1: absolutely, but whether or not um Uh, they are separate things. Uh, It's hard for me to see how a designer could intend everything that's in the game. Uh, Mm -hmm. Unless the designer creates entirely new mechanisms and an entirely new theme uh, and a completely unique personal approach, uh, the game is going to have traces uh, and meanings uh, that, that, that the designer did not personally completely fully shape. Uh, mm-hmm. and if the game is so unique that all the mechanisms and the theme are brand new, I think it would be very difficult for players to uh, absorb it I, I th- or, or play it without having any specific touchstones. Now, others will say that about literature, of course, and theater and movies, because no book, no movie, no play uh, is completely unique and completely walled off from its influences. I think, though, um, and, and this may be a personal opinion of mine, Uh, that we are much more used to identifying those influences and identifying those transmitted meanings uh, in a book or a movie or a play because we're taught to do that in high school and college. We're taught to read and watch and listen critically. I don't think we're taught to play games critically simply because there's no such class. And yes, we can figure it out on our own, but we don't have any criticism to build on. We, we, we don't have like uh, essays uh, that we were forced to read as 12-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 20-year-olds about playing games critically and why that's important. Yes, it is its own kind of propaganda, uh, but I think it is empowering. And it's not there in games, or at least we didn't get it as children.
0: I will ag- yes, we didn't get it as children. I will agree that board games uh, are a newer medium. I will disagree that there there is there's definitely plenty of academic work and critical work involving critical theory that you know exists uh, with regard to games, especially because like I was attending a conference this week, an online conference called. Uh, generation analog or analog generation online conference that was exactly that uh you know academic presentations and panels um dealing with different subjects within the larger you know gaming you know umbrella and you know yes i think you're just talking about um critical theory right like this is we, we talk about critical race theory here you're just talking about critical theory and
1: just theory
0: Theory. Yeah, that's
1: that's what it's. Called.
0: But you're also kind of, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, like one of the things you might get out of critical theory was you know like the idea of the death of the author or whatever, and like that's kind of true with the designer here is like it really kind of it doesn't matter so much what the designer intends. There is just the product at the end, and people are going to consume it and interpret it as you know as they experience it. And that's not something that the author or the designer can control. And there's probably plenty of stuff in there that they weren't even aware of themselves. You know, in, in there's all kinds of cultural uh, baggage and assumptions that are going to be in any piece of art that we make.
1: Uh, agreed. And ironically, for me, the the author of a game or a book or a movie has to own that, uh, has to acknowledge upfront uh, that their work and the reception of that work is not 100% under their conscious willful control and be responsible for that and embrace that anyway, uh, because their responsibility for it extends beyond the act of creation.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: for for example, and, and although I don't think that, uh, Kubrick did the right thing when he edited, when he removed uh, *Clockwork Orange* from distribution in England uh, when, in the seventies, when there were copycat crimes uh, based on that movie uh, on its initial release. I, I think that he, that the intent behind it, uh, the fact that Kubrick said. I do recognize my responsibility, here's what I'm going to do. And Clockwork Orange was not screened um, until decades later in England. Um, again, I don't agree with it. Um, I, I don't accept the premise, but I like Kubrick's thinking. Uh, I, I, I like his embracing that res- his responsibility,
0: uh, as a creator, got it. I, I wasn't aware of that uh, of the of that of that bit of history. Because in what it is, I'm just trying to understand exactly the distinction you're trying to make, or like you don't agree with it, but you appreciate it. Is it the idea here, Dimitri That l- listen, if people, if there are copycat crimes and the existence of this thing is doing harm, it really doesn't matter what he is the creator of that content intended. Like the only thing that matters is that there is an effect. And so he's trying to remedy that negative effect. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's an, I think that is a world in which we are living in now is, and some of this is political and what your politics are in terms of how, how things are breaking down of like, are we looking at the effects of things and then some other people are still kind of clinging to intent as what matters when in judging an action. And I think that progressives are looking more and more on to the effect of things. And I think, like especially at the Supreme Court level, they're still very, very concerned about intent, you know, in terms of, you know, did were you frightened when you fired that gun? Okay, well, then it's all right, you know, because your intent was to protect yourself, that that kind that kind of thing. I feel like we're having this major divide culturally between intent and effect, or impact would be a better word. You're the lawyer. You would you would know this stuff better than I would. Uh,
1: the way I would characterize the other side is that they feel that if you have good intent, uh, then you can escape responsibility. Uh, would they uh, put
0: it that way, Dimitri?
1: I would put it that way.
0: And, <laughs> you would uh, put it that way.
1: I'm putting it that way now.
0: You're putting it that way right and now.
1: Now let's lay it aside and talk about our next You want
0: to talk about some board games? games? Yes. Okay, in, in other news, uh Spielworks has announced uh Pilgrim, Piety and Penitent. Penitence. This is designed by Nick Case. It has art by Harold Leskey. Um and this is a game, it's for two to four players in which You are like an abbot or an abbess of your own abbey in the 14th century. Dimitri, you had thoughts about this game?
1: Well, I love the theme. Um, I studied medieval literature in college, and Chaucer, uh, the author of The Parliament of Birds, the anonymous author of Sir Gawain, and Cleanliness and Patience, and my favorite uh, poem in English, my favorite piece of writing in English, The Pearl, uh, I love Kanye mm-hmm. Willis's Doomsday book. I love the Cloisters Museum in New York, so I love it. I I love monks and abbots and clerks uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, and I even really love the Mancala mechanism that this game employs. Uh, uh, I, I I I find it very captivating. Um, but I look at the board, and it's just hexes, hexes again. And we've had a number of hex games come out recently. Yeah, I've never liked them, uh, and 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 I, I, I people do, but but seeing that honeycomb pattern just turns me off. Uh, unfortunately,
0: it, that yeah. Another be another own. another good thing that's a possible discussion is I kind of I kind of have a similar reaction myself, where there is something inside. Well, like I have a bias against hexes as well. Maybe not as strong as yours. I also kind of like when I see grids, often I find like grids, not that interesting. Like there's reasons for hexes. You're trying to do some kind of fair movement, especially when it comes to or balance things like you often have to, when you, you're kind of taking space and you're quantifying it, um, by applying, you know, this kind of strict mathematical geography to the world. But, um, Yeah, I don't love hexes either. It never, I never feel better, you know, necessarily looking at hexes. But um, this game looks interesting, and I, I feel like all the Spielworks games I've been playing recently uh, have, I've liked. They've all been really, really solid. I'm not sure there's any that I love, love, love. But I'll play. I'll pretty much play anything that Spielworks puts out, and this one doesn't look as drab. Like, there's almost an intentional drabness to a lot of Spielwerks titles. And this one, just looking at pictures here, guys, uh, or... It's brightly colored. It's brightly colored. All right. uh, Also, kind of getting this on people's radar, I think uh, Jamie Stegmeier is releasing Rolling Realms, which is a roll-and-write game that he developed during the pandemic for playing, you know, games over social media like facebook live or or zoom and uh, i think this is actually going to become commercially available very soon if you want to find out more about this uh jamie has a design diary on his website at uh, stone mayor games and we will have the link for that in the show notes are you are you eager for a roll and write dimitri
1: uh, Matt brought some Roll and Write games in, um, and there was like a two month period where that was our like lighter game before uh, the heavier game of the evening. Uh, I don't understand their appeal personally. To me, it feels like a combination Yahtzee and bookkeeping, um, and and, and I, I I I mean, if you enjoy it, I, I don't enjoy Sudoku. There are a lot of things that um, i i is
0: at least one player. I think part of the appeal of Roland and rights is you can kind of play any number simultaneously
1: uh yes uh and and i I'm the wrong person to consult yeah uh, yeah I can talk about my own apathy at length uh and I will stop.
0: <laughs> fair enough yeah I, I think it's fair to say that like rolling rights are not exactly in the in the game brain wheelhouse if we're going to get together we probably want to play something a little meatier but this might be perfect for you know the the kind of the medium that j and i and i really like the idea of of people and, and a lot of it happened also of people that were designing for the constraints that we were all living with during the pandemic and doing games that can be played you know Online, you know, when you're when you're not in person together, so, um, so we will see. Um, Weather Machine is the next game from uh, Vito Lacerda. Who? Probably Vital. What did we decide? It's the correct pronunciation of his first name. I think it's Vital. Uh, vital Lacerda. I okay.
1: I don't think that diphthong exists in Italian or Portuguese, but I could be wrong.
0: I will. I stand corrected. Weather Machine, though, Uh, this will be coming to Kickstarter in the fourth quarter of this year. We're looking at some images here. It's a game for one to four players, and you take on the role of scientists teaming up with the mad scientist Professor Latif. I don't know. Did I pronounce that right? To manipulate the extreme weather called by Latif's flawed weather machine. So you manage your own laboratories, research various types of weather build bots, acquire chemicals, and increase the size of your workshops to store resources and build prototypes to make breakthroughs that will hopefully fix extreme weather forever. And this, the artist on this game is Ian O'Toole. Of course it is.
1: Yes. Uh, so, for me, what's interesting about this game um, is that it continues the trend of La who started out uh, doing really grounded reality based, even historically based games like Lisboa, Kanban, um and, and The Gallerist, and has moved
2: Dinos,
1: yeah. yes, in those. And, and and like heavy research, uh, really gritty um in terms of their factuality. And and has moved more into fanciful themes uh, like the getaway plan or the escape plan and on Mars. And now this, uh, for me, that's interesting. I, I, I think in our group, I'm one of the people who's more, uh, moved and, and who's more influenced by theme. Uh, one of the half or maybe one and a half things that Tom and I have in common is our dislike of fantasy themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and preference for realism and science fiction, and I wonder why. What is moving Lescarbot to do this? Uh, whether the impetus comes from his creative urge uh, as as a maker of games, uh, whether it's something that his publisher is encouraging, whether he's reading the public uh, and, and what wanting. To have games that are more accessible and approachable, he feels that these brighter, more narrative themes uh, uh, will 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 make it easier for uh, players to understand the rules and to play them. Uh, I think it's significant because it's a trend and it's a switch up. Uh, what do you think about the tray? Because you're the game designer, uh, and and how does steam work into the process or how does for for you and, and for others
0: yeah my, my personal bias on this is that i'm concerned i think the game looks really interesting and it has lots of nice little bits uh that look expertly designed and are very colorful and that's all very exciting to me i I think kind of what you're saying is like, I like a theme that is going to tell a story and probably it's something that we have some frame of reference for. So my concern for a game like this is that it's going to be Trismegistus. Yes. I don't think I've, I've ever really enjoyed a game that's like a mad scientist game or an alchemy game because they often feel like, well, I'm, I'm you betrary. know, I'm... what's that?
1: Arbitrary
0: arbitrary and also like i find it harder to understand these games because i can't like apply an outside narrative to it to help in my understanding and so it just in some ways like it it reveals the underlying mechanisms in a way that can be ugly where you realize oh i'm just treating you know unit a's into unit b's so that i can score you know then convert those into Con- things that I'm going to turn into a contract that's going to score me points and it just becomes kind of like weird conversion games that don't actually model anything because yes I'm very big on games that model some kind of narrative whether that narrative is reality or not and I don't know yet, and so I'm suspicious of a narrative that's about a, a mad scientist and weird weather machines Um, because I, I'm like what meaning am I going to get from modeling that whereas at least if you're playing on mars you're modeling you know a colony on mars and mars expansion or you know hey i'm grow i'm a wine producer and i'm trying to just you know put together wines that are going to score really highly at these wine festivals and that's the way i'm going to compete with my fellow wine gr- i mean like kanban fascinating for like modeling automobile production and the different um things that go into automobile production like there's a lot of meaning in what it's modeling there i don't philosophical
1: know principles of car production automobile production uh right. n- not just the mechanics but actual think organizational thinking uh that goes into it how the teams interact
0: yeah, so just so everyone's clear, like, we are speculating about what this game is. We're, we will obviously uh, play it. But yes, my initial reaction is I'm not exactly thrilled and and I am suspicious of just like whole cloth make-em-ups. Because I imagine you can kind of feel like, I, as a designer, it's like, it gives me freedom to do anything, but that's probably not a good thing. A lot of the constraints of like trying to model something that really, you know, that has some narrative meaning, like that's a good constraint, I, I think. And, and the the world of turning green potions into red potions or, or you know, weird weather machines, it's, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a bigger ask for me to care. Uh, and uh,
1: if I may throw in the plug, uh, Trey, the game that you mentioned, Trismegistus, uh, is a game that you reviewed with Jake and Tom on an earlier episode of game brain, and I think that is one of our peaks. Uh, and I encourage everyone to listen to that episode and specifically that review. It really taught me a lot of, about your perspective and what's important in games in general.
0: Thank you. I think the the, the downside sometimes of like I don't like doing reviews like Tris McGistis because I like us to be championing games and saying to our listeners hey we think this is great and we're and we're kind of sticking it in your face of like please check this out we think this is this is wonderful like today's review of pandemic for example Uh, i don't i don't like it when some people are saying not pandemic uh Pandemic, pandemic excuse me thank you um I don't like being in the position, especially because I think a number of people did enjoy Trismegistus. And I don't like slamming the brakes on something where other people are having fun. If people are having fun playing a game, they're having fun playing a game. Uh, it wasn't for me. All right. So um, there are more details are coming out about a future Uwe Rosenberg game called Tulpenfiber? I'm bad again I apologize for my pronunciation This is a game about tulips Planting tulips and Laying them out in patterns And I'm seeing Dice I'm seeing an Uwe Rosenberg game with dice So I'm very happy to hear about new games From Lacerda and Rosenberg
1: (laughs) Rosenberg announced his retirement And I'm so glad to see that maybe he's the Stephen King uh, of, of, of uh, game designers. Stephen King announced his retirement several times, and he just came out with a book this week, a big, fat 600-page novel. Uh, I do want to say that if it's about Dutch tulips, unless it's a game where everybody loses, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's uh, accurate <laughs> or realistic.
0: We'll expand on for for our listeners what you're referring to with with retirement. Uh,
1: I thought he announced his retirement. Am I wrong? That, that no, I think he, I think you're right. I thought he
0: was- announced that he was done with making the the kind of quote unquote big box games.
1: Oh, okay. Uh,
0: I, I, we'll we'll, we'll we'll check that. We, 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 was this in the context of like Hallertau? That Hallertau would be the last of his. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but, um, you know, it's a Uwe Rosenberg game. There has been a big difference between, yeah, the kind of big box games that Rosenberg releases that I'm always eager to try. And then, you know, he still released a lot of kind of like smaller games. He has a ton of games that are like exploring the whole polyomino theme. And I haven't played other than patchwork. I haven't played many of those because that's not really what I want to do, but that's fine. I, you know, uh, it's clear kind of like wh- which of his games are for which audiences. I don't. Sure. So, like when Jennifer last week, I'm just remembering this from her episode where she kind of threw out there that Lahav was her least favorite Uwe Rosenberg game. I was kind of like, I don't believe that that's true. You may not like Lahav, but. You know has anybody almost no one has played all of his games. I think he has like 56 different games. There's, I'm sure there are games that even Jennifer has not played. but you know she she maybe she'll come on and say, yes, Trey, I've actually played every single Uva Rosenberg game and I'm ready to discuss all of them and I will I will stand corrected.
1: Uh, if listeners want an alternative take on La Havre to Jennifer's, we reviewed La Havre on an episode uh you me paul and matt
0: so uh right but that wouldn't be yes that wouldn't be jennifer's perspective no no, no t- but, yeah, she can she could communicated her feelings in, in in the last in the last episode of the thing of the uh, of the podcast um we also saw there is a new game coming out called dune betrayal and the reason this especially like i love dune but also this is from don Eskridge who was the designer of The Resistance, and since we love Avalon, The Resistance Avalon so much, this is bound to get uh, our attention. It's for four to eight players. That sounds right. Uh, Social deduction game. Uh, In Dune Betrayal, players take on the identity of one of the iconic characters of Dune, each representing a distinct role within the factions vying for control amid the sands of Dune. Um, So, Dimitri, thoughts about a resistance style game that is dune themed
1: uh i can't imagine a better marriage of the types of mechanisms that i think this game will have and its subject matter and its theme uh, so if i'm i would love to play avalon in the dune universe
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: I, I think that's excellent however my hesitation is is uh, when we play Avalon, and as we've been playing Quest, we've edited down the roles that are available in the game because we feel only some of these characters and, and their rule-breaking powers uh, can give us a genuine balance. When you're playing Dune, you can't do that. Uh, because uh, there needs to be at least the potential of a Harkonnen, at least the potential <laughs> of an Atreides, at least the potential, potential of a Benny Jesuit. And if we in advance say, well, Benny Jesuits break the game, so they're not going to be in it, that kind of ruins the whole thing. So I'm very excited and I'm trepidatious because of how we at Game Brain specifically play these games uh and this is i think the fifth time that the notion of our meta uh has been uh present in our discussion without my explicitly naming it this is a very unified episode thematically
0: got it yeah i'm i'm uh, I'm, i'm very curious to see what this is, and yes, I agree that um, this is a process. I think we'll talk about this in, in games on the brain, but this is kind of a process we're going through with Quest right now, which is that we're we're playing the game. Uh, a, we're learning the game, and we're playing the game on its own terms. And we have a lot of strong observations about the game from those initial plays, and our like our desire to start tweaking to almost like fix the game. Had you know, has already. Uh, begun and well,
1: not fix it, but figure out if there is a combination uh, of the player powers that works for us, right? Um, uh, I'll have more to say about it uh, in my games on the brain segment.
0: Well, I think it is that's a perfect segue then to our games on the brain segment itself.
2: Really?
0: So why don't we just do it? Go, go straight into Quest. Tell me what you're, yeah, what's yeah. on your brain with, so, with regards to Quest.
1: So what's on my brain with regards to Quest and teach you are like, when do I stop playing the game? When do I give up on the game? Uh, Quest, we're not quite there yet. Because uh, Avalon is our second favorite game as a group. Uh, and it's a game that we've played more often than any other uh, there are members individual members in the group who don't like certain aspects of Avalon and quest um, it, it, it fixes those aspects or, or, or at least moves like um, and attempts to address
0: them yes yeah
1: yeah uh, and yet after I think over a dozen plays, uh, I haven't yet had, personally, a satisfying experience uh, playing Quest. Uh, yesterday, I happened to win. Uh, you were on the winning side. Paul and Tom uh, were also on the winning side. Mike were on the winning side. We, we played uh, an eight-player uh, Quest. I didn't feel satisfied. I didn't feel that I actually won the game. That's something I did really mattered. Uh, I, I, I put a lot of theories out there. Uh, I, I called out several players. I changed my mind uh, a couple of times. I ultimately didn't feel like I was guiding the game compared to the effort that, that I was putting into it. Um, there was another game that was very enjoyable uh, with Paul and Tom being bad guys uh, and, and, and they won, but I think even Paul would say, oh, this was really fun, but I don't know if it was because of something that I did that the bad guys won. Um, so I'm, what, I'm beginning to wonder after a dozen plays. I'm not ready to do that yet, but I'm beginning to wonder, what would be the number of plays where uh, we could say that's enough? where we could say we've given it our best shot, and if we have not found a way to really play this game masterfully, uh, that we can set it aside and bring it out only on special occasions.
0: Yeah, and it's a good point that like we're giving it a lot of chance, right? Because we're we've been so invested in Avalon, like the idea of a quicker or even just a different Avalon that's gonna capture a lot of the same magic, I think is really appealing to us. And so I think we're going to invest a lot of energy and emotion to trying to make that work. I think I'm in a similar headspace to you where I, I'm certainly starting to have my doubts. We have a lot of interactions which I'm enjoying that, you know, where it feels like Avalon, it feels like a number of the the similar beats um and that's good it's it's not it's certainly not a a terrible game the bar is very high to kind of have it match avalon the appeal of playing quest would be something quicker and more streamlined that's going to address the problems for the players that are checking out during avalon but i wonder is this actually kind of like revealing like the, the reasons that some of us really like avalon so much and it may not connect with others because like in our game of quest last night, I felt kind of sidelined or like I could just not say something for five minutes and it would be okay. You know, it wasn't essential that I'd be participating. And there was kind of a time where I'm like, either either the good guys are going to win this or they're, they're not. And I'm not sure how much I really had to to do with that. You were a good guy on this, on that game. I, you know, to to be honest, I felt like you actually made it harder for us to win, but we still, oh, sure. still did. And like that's that's one of the, um, like that's actually an interesting thing about these games is a lot of times, you know, your your best efforts as a player can be counterproductive. It doesn't mean you necessarily played poorly. It just kind of worked out that way. We advance theories. You explore them. You certainly had some strong feelings about a particular theory that turned out to be wrong. But yes. that's, that's okay. But it's important, it's, it's important to kind of like uh, articulate those. So this is feeling like, oh, we want this to work so much. Uh, but it, but it so far for me, it hasn't, it hasn't, I haven't loved it. And, and, and then there is kind of like, it seems to be kind of a balance problem, which is that good just wins too much. Playing, playing this game, and we'll see if that bears out more over time. Like I said, we're getting more reps. How many reps do we have to have? We've already kind of taken out one of the roles that we felt made it too hard on the bad guys, and I think we're still seeing um, good guys win too much. So we're still uh, dealing with small sample size, but we'll see.
1: You, you said something about whether the game works on its own terms. That's a high ask. Because we are always gonna see it as a redo of Avalon,
0: it is yeah, it is
1: and, and and so i I also wonder whether it's fair for us or to expect us uh to see it as its own separate special, unique creation, uh because I'm bringing all of my Avalon expectations to it. And trying to check off the boxes, will it meet this, this, and this? And I'm not looking for it to be a hundred percent of the, you know, give me a hundred percent of the feels and thoughts of Avalon. But I yeah. want
0: a significant uh, percentage. We don't hit. want it to be Avalon. Like we, I think we want it to be its own thing. Like it, being the same as Avalon would not be good. We want it to be something different. And so both we want like, yes, there's a meta in our, in our Avalon, or like we've played this game and we have certain things that we think we believe about, you know, how to play the game correctly. And so part of the appeal of quest is to blow up that meta and have to create a new one because of a different rule set and different incentives. You know, some of the ways you play Avalon where like you're always representing yourself as basic blue, you know, that that's a belief that we have about, uh, you know core avalon like that doesn't apply here or it may not apply here we have to kind of reinvent the wheel a little bit in terms of our our social dynamics and that's actually really appealing it at least uh at least to me let's circle back to the your original point though was like when do we quit these games um and i just i'll circle back around to the you know theory of fun by by raph coster and and if if I understand that book correctly, his central theory is like we we play games to learn and when we feel like we have nothing to learn from a game anymore, we put it aside and the question with quest is kind of like is there something to be learned here and I, we may be reaching a point where we kind of figure out oh, man, there's not as much here to learn as we think, and if it does have some lessons, we've learned them. That would be that would be the end if that's if that turns out to be the case. Or are we still intrigued to explore this new space that is giving us some you know new things to learn every time we play it? Because that's the way Aval- Avalon. Part of the th- reason it's such a great game with us is it felt like it always had new ways to surprise us with new, new like wrinkles Tactics. on the game that emerge. You know, even after multiple hundreds of plays, it could still surprise us at times.
1: Uh, the other game on my brain is Teach You my favorite game. I started playing it online on BGA after holding out for several months. And I've stopped. Uh, I, I, I've stopped. Uh, um, I'm, I'm going to keep myself from playing it again, um, like I did with um, uh, that Tetris, like I did with Collapse. Uh, I found myself playing those games compulsively, and I just quit them.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and with you, I quit playing you on BGA after two nudges by BGA itself, Um uh, after I earned uh, the uh, teach you addict badge,
0: there's a there's a uh, it, there's an addict badge. I didn't
1: know a, that. There's an addict badge, and also after I was booted from a game where I was in the lead and I was enjoying myself, uh, when my uh, internet connection, when my Wi-Fi went down for about a minute, and, and I uh,
0: that was enough. A minute. A
1: minute. Was enough. Um, uh, 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 it's happened to me a couple of times where players went silent, um, and uh, we uh, both times uh, we waited several minutes, and we did not penalize the players for for a technical malfunction. Um, and with me, I lost points. Uh, I was booted very quickly. That was a nudge. Uh, I, I play games on uh, when I do uh, online for my mood.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I'm, I'm not playing Tichu because I have something new to learn from it. I'm not playing Tichu uh, because I want to become a Tichu champion. I'm not playing Tichu for money, and I never will. Um, I don't even know if that's a thing. Uh, so <laughs> I'm only playing Tichu to improve my mental state to, to make myself happy. And if I'm going to be frustrated, uh, I'd rather not do it.
0: Yeah. The, your, your point about kind of like, uh, games that you've played too much or, or, or you've played addictively that, that points out the kind of strange, very narrow window of games that stick around for me because, you know, there's plenty of games that you, that I try out that just don't grab me enough to play them multiple times. This is especially true of like video games, And other games that I can play on my computer. And I'll go and check them out and kind of learn what they're about. But often don't stick with them long at all. Decide it's not for me, move on. Didn't interest me enough. There's another side to that though. Which is there are games that I start playing them. And recognize, oh, I really like this game. I really, really, really like this game. This is a dangerous game. And that's like, for example, that's what happened with me when Overwatch launched. And I think I played Overwatch for two weeks and then just deleted it from my computer. Cause like this can't stick around because I could easily fall into the Overwatch hole of just of playing, you know, twelve hours a day and getting and not having a whole life at all. And so that's a choice I make of like, oh, this was this is way too good. This has got to go because it could be so destructive on the on the rest of my life. So there's a this narrow window in between of games that I like enough that I want to play occasionally and continue to play to present challenges to me without completely sucking me into a, you know, a black hole of, of, of play.
1: And this is why board games are so great with regards to that kind of understanding, because the social structure of them
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: means you, you can't get, you can't mainline a board game. You have to get people together you have to choose. You have to have consensus about what, what you're going to play. Uh, it's like social drinking. And I know people can get uh, it can become alcoholic, even if they only drink socially. But uh, there are structural things uh, in a social gaming uh, that, that prevent you from becoming compulsive about it.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm nodding. I'm nodding my head to what you're saying. Um, one other thing on my brain. I think I referenced it earlier. I um, attended the Generation Analog Online Game Studies Conference this week, and I just wanted. I had a great time. I wanted to throw out a thank you to Evan Turner, Aaron Trammell, and Shelly Jones, who were uh, the hosts of the podcast and moderated all of the different uh, sessions. Um, we had there was a bunch of different great subjects both for like studying games and ma- and making games heard from 20 or 30 different designers and academics uh, I think they're gonna make some of their content online on YouTube uh, when that happens we will share that uh, at game Brain. I really I also especially wanted to point out for our audience there were a lot of great presentations but ones that would just be I think especially um valuable to game brainers is there were there were keynotes by both um scott nicholson who is kind of an expert you know he's an academic but also game designer who's an expert on um uh, uh, escape rooms and and kind of like some of the bigger design issues that go into escape rooms and applying that to educational games which was important to me and then there was another keynote from elizabeth hargrave who um just did a great great presentation that's really important uh, um, when it becomes available and she was specifically looking at uh demographics within the hobby within the hobby of board gaming and the industry of of board gaming and exploring solutions for making games and our hobby more inclusive and opening it up to a more diverse audience you know both in terms just in terms of like how do you actually go about Doing that. And also just like, how do we measure these things? It's very hard to actually extract good data about who's playing what games. Um, And it's like maybe easier to like look at, you know, publishers and companies and look at their workforce But um, I think she's doing a lot of good work as, you know, clearly she's got an academic perspective on this, but she's a designer and she's looking at our industry and saying and trying to measure what's actually going on here and how do we make change. And I thought that was really uh, an important um, idea. And she's asking questions that don't have good answers for how, how do you go about making change in our in our hobby and in the industry to just bring in more people. So we will make that available when it becomes available on, on YouTube. All right. Well, why don't we get to our review of Canamax?
2: Do we have right. time for a review?
0: <laughs> have we been going long? <laughs> this, this, hopefully this is not one of those episodes, but this might be uh one of those episodes. All right. Well, today we are talking about Panamax, uh, released in 2014. This is a game for two to four players. Um, BGG has it as best at four. I think I would recommend that you only play this game at four. Um, it has a it says 100 minute playing time. That sounds about right, maybe a little short. Um, it is designed by Gil Deore, Nuno Bizarro Sentiero, and Paulo Soledade. Uh, these are Portuguese designers, I believe, and the artists are Felipe Alves and Gildore himself. Also, uh, this game has a BGG weight of three point seven five. We had a little discussion; you thought that was correct, I, I very think accurate,
1: you're exactly right. Uh, as uh, at least for me, uh, if somebody—that's actually the score I had in mind be- before I, I I checked it.
0: Which means that it's actually pretty pretty heavy without being super heavy it's not an 18xx but it has some of those elements um and maybe a little bit heavier than our average game brain wheelhouse type 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 of type of game all oh, right so oh, Pal- Panama-
1: although when we sit down and say okay we're gonna play a heavy challenging game um uh, this is kind of what we mean Panama- yeah for
0: challenging uh, yeah yeah so Panamax, the title of the game is Panamax. Yes, it is about the Panama, Panama Canal. Uh, Panamax is a term for the largest ship that can actually fit in the Panama Canal. So it's a giant ship with very little <laughs> room on either side of it if it travels through the Panama Canal. Um, when you were playing this game, our role in the game, Dimitri, is what? Like we're, we're shipping magnates. and We're we, companies. Uh,
1: uh, we're basically transporting goods through the canal Uh, and the game actually encourages us to do that Um, if we uh, keep goods in a warehouse or if we fulfill a contract but don't load the goods uh, onto a ship uh, or um, if we keep the ship on one or the other side of the canal we have to pay huge tariffs taxes costs for keeping the goods there. But the moment we start moving the goods, uh, we actually save money because even if the good is in a lock or especially if the good is in a lake on a ship, uh, we pay much less uh, maintenance costs. So uh, if I may launch into it, It's kind of like a negative track building game. In a game like Age of Steam in 18XX, when we build tracks, we spend money. But here, we spend a lot of money if we don't deliver, if we don't pick up. And the moment we do, our expenses drop, which to me is very interesting and very thematic, a kind of a mirror image of a regular uh, uh, pick-up-and-drop-off delivery system. And I was thinking about, how does this game feel different? Why does it feel less punitive? Um, And it's kind of like nudges nudges me as a player. If I'm paying attention to what it's actually telling me, if it's paying attention to what it, 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 how it's guiding me to do what i'm thematically what I can thematically understand is my purpose as a player um and, and and to do it more efficiently is what actually makes me win if that makes sense
0: yeah it it does it does make sense so um yeah on a simple level you're yes, you're doing the thing that the game kind of promises you're a shipping company, and so you're delivering goods on your ships from you know through the canal and the canal operates kind of east to west and west to east so you're 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 delivering from Atlantic markets to the Pacific markets, and from Pacific markets to the Atlantic market. So there's kind of a neat cycle thing going on there. I did say shipping magnate because, yes, we're running a company, but this is one of those games where running the company is you are not the company, you're the guy running the company, and it makes a distinction between. You know the company's money and your personal money, and there is a stock aspect of this game where you can purchase stocks of other people's companies um, for some very good reasons sometimes. But it does model the act of shipping goods in in a modern in in a modern market economy world uh, kind of thing, and a lot of the game is devoted towards like the rules of actually moving this freight. And it, and I think this is actually quite elegant. Like one of the things that it, it, it's a little bit of a tough teach this game, but it also has uh, some, some really nice simplicities, which is like on your turn, you're going to do one thing. You're going to pick up a die and then take the action associated with the die. And the two choices of that are, are just one of two things. You're either getting essentially like moves in order to move your ships through, through the can- lakes and canals of the Panama Canal, or you're taking a contract and loading goods onto your ships. Like, those are the two things you're deciding to do. And every time you take one of these dice and and pick it up, like, that's your entire round. You're going to do this four times in a round in a round for a total of 12 times in the entire game. So you only get 12 turns in this entire game, but that's still... Um, quite quite a lot but you know at the actual core of the game is something pretty simple you're either kind of like taking on obligations to move goods and being rewarded for that or you're moving the goods themselves and that's where it also gets really interesting because of the nature of the canal you form these weird interesting alliances temporarily with other players because once ships and goods go into a lock someone comes in behind you, they have to push you along. So and it
1: doesn't cost you anything to move your ship through the lock, but it doesn't cost the other player any extra uh, to move your sh- ship through it. So there's a lot of free movement, which means there's a lot of opportunity for uh, cooperation within competition. Uh, and you can form alliances uh, although we didn't tend to do that in our current place, when we played the game, when it initially came out, there were a lot of, I'll push you through this mm-hmm. lock in this direction if you do the same for me in the opposite direction. Um, and which means that unlike most train games that I can think of, certainly Age of Steam, uh, two players can profit from helping each other.
0: Uh, and, and well, the this- specific way they can do that is, well, here's a, here's one difference, is like in Panamax, your goods can go on other people's ships. Yes. So you, in, in addition to kind of like making deals, it's often the case that a particular ship will be carrying Dimitri's goods and my goods, and so we are both incentivized for this ship to... Reach its destination because we will both be rewarded, so that's like an example of a little mini alliance that forms on a ship by ship basis That's so right I can even be a cuckoo and sneak in and
1: drop a good onto an empty space of a ship that you were hoping to load and kind of piggyback off of 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 your uh, action but if i if my good is much more valuable than yours by the way, those goods are represented by dice and the number of pips is the value of the good when it's delivered, Um, then you will be disincentivized to move it along and I would have to push your ship with your uh, good on it and mine. Uh, So uh, these are very interesting um, um, uh, calculations that you make, but they don't feel punitive for me mm-hmm. they don't they don't feel oppressive and, and there it there always feels to me like there's something i can do uh maybe my scheme will get frustrated maybe the contract that i really want is not available at the moment uh but because the uh actual transport uh, actual moving mechanism this is a delivery game this is a, uh, uh, the term i'm i'm searching for is operations this is an operating game for Operation. the most part. yeah 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 uh, operational and the operations are unique interesting and, and also give you a lot of options uh, and, and and that is one for me one of the big strengths of this game and there are others that that i want to talk about later
0: yeah, this game, like you said, has a lot of interesting incentives that I think we're, even though we've played the game a few times and many times over the years, uh, I'm still struggling. I feel like we we finished the game last night. We had, I think everyone had a nice time. Paul maybe didn't have this nice of a time because um, he was struggling for understanding why he didn't do better. But I, I think everybody still enjoyed the process of playing the game, but we also recognized like oh, we're not that good at this game. There's a lot more... Like, we could be playing this game uh, so much better on a number of different levels. So it still holds a lot of promise in reserve for mastery that we most certainly have not achieved yet.
1: Uh, after we finished playing it, I think we talked for 15, 20 minutes, uh, all four of us, Matt Patterson, a friend of, of, uh, 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 of the podcast, Uh, and Paul and you and I, analyzing, well, what happened? What did we do? What decisions did we make? What decisions could we have made uh, differently? And what would the outcomes of that have been? Uh, Paul had a magnificent first uh, round. Uh, And I had a disastrous first round.
0: Uh uh you thought, I, you thought you had a disastrous first round. I'm well, not sure it was. I'm not sure it was in the end, obviously. I, you won. I set myself up in a certain
1: way, but I paid a heavy price for setting myself up to do well in the second round. And it turns out that uh I actually had a really good third round, um, but that was by no means guaranteed. Um I want to talk a little bit about the action selection, which is so important when you Mm -hmm. take cubes. um, It's so simple. It's like technically it's simple and it's intuitive. And I like how in so many instances like this action selection mechanism, the game actually goes one step beyond what might be expected of it. For example, uh, if the game designer were just being, what can I do here? That could have been a worker placement action selection, right? We we mm-hmm. could have just been given four workers each, uh, and and and, and uh, because every one of us would have has four turns in the round, we could have placed them there. But using dice that are picked up gives variability. Uh, gives novelty in every turn because depending on how the dice are rolled, certain actions become much more available than others um, in an unpredictable way. But this is input randomness that's good. And, and again, it's like avoiding uh, worker placement to give something just a little more novel, a little with a little bit of gleam on it, a little bit more. Variability, a little bit more interest. And there's so many ways uh, in which this game does this. Uh, has little unique uh, uh, things that, that uh, I haven't seen uh, in other games uh, uh, of this type. It goes one step further uh, and a little bit more polish uh, th- th- than other examples of the genre.
0: No, I think it's a good point you made. Um, I think there's good reasons this isn't a worker placement game, and I think it's because it's it is successfully modeling, you know, you being you running a shipping company. You're a shipping magnate, and so you're choosing the action you're going to take, and the action you're going to take. Hey, surprise, surprise! In a shipping game, you know, half of your choices are ship or move boats, and half of your actions are you know fulfill you know take and fulfill contracts and load boats. You know, like, so, yeah, I don't know how it would work with worker placement. I'm not a German family, you know, going out and collecting wood and planting grain. I'm making core decisions for my business. uh, And I think ultimately we figured out that, like, this game is, does fall into the category of those kind of, like, 18xx light games that have a stock component that's, that's a very accessible level of st- stock component because like it, the, the company does pay out dividends and your personal wealth at the end is the thing that matters. And so managing this company well is important, but what's more important is that you're managing the company so that it's paying you and giving you the cash you need to buy more stock. And I think ultimately like that's where you succeeded as a player last night is that you had a, you were able to have a huge final round where your company paid out all, To you, a lot of money personally at the end. And then you get paid for the value of the stocks in your company at the end of the game as well. And so you ended up having the best managed company in the end. So your victory felt narratively appropriate. Uh,
1: Yes. Uh, And and, uh, in fact, we figured out that you could have bought a share of my stock and tightened the game significantly and, and possibly even have won um and, and and uh what what's interesting to me is um in its stock manipulation and 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 and, and, and company manipulation this games this game reminds me of other 18xx light games like Tokyo Metro uh, and and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh the city of big shoulders yeah but exactly it preceded, it preceded those games Uh, in terms of its release date. And here, I feel it functions already. It functions really, really well. For me, uh, there are certain details about gameplay that we're we're not going into right now, like uh, the achievement track of uh, every time you fulfill a contract, but before you actually ship the goods. You you can put uh, the token with the flag of the nation whose goods you're shipping, Western U.S., Eastern U.S., China, European Union, uh, on an achievement track. And that lets you uh, take an additional action like buying stock or moving your ship uh, or uh, improving one of your dice. Um, You can uh, push along uh, various militaries of the countries that you have a contractual relationship with um, for money that you put in your personal pocket. There's a train that goes across the isthmus that allows you to deliver one good. Um, and, and if you do, you can have your choice of uh, one of the country tokens uh, and all it, smart play. Uh, uh, also executive actions that let you boost your Stock value, etc. Um, yeah, there's uh, some
0: fl- action flexibility. Yeah, yeah.
1: A, a smart player would, like I happened to be last night, can take advantage of all those in sequence. This is also very much uh, a timing game. With, with <laughs> very this, much so. so uh, Absolutely. Do you want to expand on that.
0: Well, yes, because you only have 12 actions. Yes, this feels a little bit like. Um, a Lacerda game where uh, especially like the gallerist where there's a number of steps you have to take uh, and they don't, sometimes they need to be ordered in order. Sometimes they don't, but I often found like I was having very, very difficult decisions about when I should be loading goods versus when I should be moving and, and getting that sequence, that timing and, and sequencing Correct That was part of my, the decision space and those were those were big those were big weighty decisions. Um, I really like w- one of the things you mentioned there, which you're kind of alluding to, which was this flag system where you get flags of these four different markets. But all it does on a really basic level is it's modeling your improved business relationship with these markets. So the more business you do with China, the the better your relationship is with china and so you get you have these little benefits for having had experience and and having you know produced successfully for these markets in the past and i thought that was they did it in a really kind of simple an interesting way. If you have a great relationship with China, when you then help by moving a Chinese military ship through the canal, China reward will reward you heavily because you you've got an existing relationship, and so they'll they'll pay you for your trouble. I thought that was that was very nice.
1: I feel after about nine or ten plays of this game, uh, since it came out, I feel we are beginning to scratch the surface of. Not so much the depths of strategy, but the tactical variations and, and, and how uh, actions can interlace uh, and be linked together, can be timed uh, for maximum effect. Um, one of the things that strikes me, I always liked this game, uh, I've always remembered it quite vividly. Um, playing it again, Uh, a couple of times recently just reinforced what you said, how thematic it is, how everything in it, how every action you take can be understood as part of a fictional reality. Um, In a way that even like age of steam, even uh, 18XX, even though they're modeling a complex reality, Train rusting in 18XS has never, has never felt.
0: Yeah, it never felt exactly right, does it? It never Neither.
1: felt exactly right. Now, 18XX is not a game that I personally want to play, but absolutely no doubt it is a great gaming system. What this game does is kind of edits down the pleasures of 18XX into an operating and stock game that's thematic and fun and interesting and often frustrating as well, but for me in a good way, that plays in two and a half hours. Yesterday, we were finished by midnight. We started at nine o'clock. We had, you you gave a teach. I had
0: to do a teach, yeah. You had
1: to do a teach for Matt Patterson, and this was Matt's. First play of the game. I think he enjoyed it. But he took his time thinking about his turns. And and, and he had every right to do so. And and he played really well. What I'm saying is that if all four players are familiar with the game, don't have to do a teach, uh, this is a two-hour game. Not 100 minutes, like it says in the box. Not much longer than that. Yeah. it it has the scope of barrage, uh, even Cerda games, which this very much scratches for me the same itch of uh, play longer. Uh, I I I think the Gallerist is is a full three hours. I think Lisboa is a full
0: three hours. Yeah, I this think game un- doesn't doesn't overstay its welcome. It's it's a it's a real good length, and you feel like you feel that ending coming. <laughs> before you're even halfway through the game, and you're you recognize all the things you need to do, you know before before the game ends, and how do you and how do you best use your time? So that 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 feels like that really works.
1: Yeah, it's like just tuned. It's like a really too well tuned car, or a really fast paced two hour movie, uh, and it's replayable. It's one of those. It, it, it To me, it feels like an iconic game, like Barrage. Uh, Panamax is one of those games where somebody asks me, What's a good game to play that has the qualities that Game Brain is looking for, or even if that, that I personally am looking for? Uh, that has good art, that has interesting, intriguing mechanisms, that has a good theme, that is Thought through, fully realized. Uh, all of its components work together. Uh, to me, this is yeah. one of those games, one of those platonic, uh, y- y- you know,
0: examples of, of, of. Yeah, I'm. I'm always down to play this game. Like, like you say, I, I don't think I'm ever like. Eh, I'm just not in the mood for Panamex today. I don't think I'm ever like that. I think the. One thing that we have struggled with since this game came out in 2014 is like we play this game and we put it back on the shelf. And when we pull it out 18 months later or whatever, it does feel like we're starting over. Like it's hard to keep that kind of not exactly like institutional knowledge of it. But like I would love to play the like we played the game twice here in the last couple of weeks. Again, like I'm ready to play it again. Like, I don't, I kind of like, I don't want to lose that momentum because I feel like, okay, now I'm back up to speed now. And we kind of need to, to stay there because like when we have put it aside, it's been tough to kind of cycle back up. And so I think like that's a minor negative of this game is that um, I would say it's not the easiest teach. It's not a p- bad teach, but like we enough time had passed for us since we had played it. Coming in here in 2021 that I couldn't just sit down and say, okay, guys, here's how you play the game. I had to go back to the rule book. I had to kind of go through the steps. And, like, that was a little brutal where we were trying to – and then, like, there's a little bit of, like, edge casey stuff of, like, how did that work again or whatever? And, oh, isn't there this thing? Yeah, like, like it was not being it was...
1: able to load – the same ship twice in one that's right time. only
0: each ship could only be loaded one time during a given turn and we had forgotten that rule which felt a little fiddly but there's good reasons for it but it was still like that's the kind of thing you could overlook um teaching matt a new player uh last night the game having played it the week before was vastly easier And I really didn't have to consult the rule book again. And like, that's the way it needs to be because there is an elegance to this game. And so I don't know if that's an indication that the rule book is not as good as it should be, but like teaching from the rule book was a real struggle when you, me, Paul and David were playing it last week or yeah, two weeks ago, kind of like for the, for the first time in a while. I felt like, oh, I did a bad teach. (laughs) I did a bad teach of the game then. Uh,
1: I I think with a game like Agricola, there's certain signposts with Agricola, like family growth. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to remember that the moment family growth becomes available, it it becomes a priority. Uh, With Panamax, it's much more fluid. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. No
2: pun
1: intended. Yes. (laughs) I didn't even realize I was making a joke. Sometimes when I think I'm making a joke, I'm not. (laughs) But uh, but here, uh, because of the nature of the theme, there aren't the signposts. Uh, Every game, every individual play, you kind of have to decide for yourself what, what your priorities are at this moment based on what contracts are available, based on what other players are doing. Uh, So it's hard to figure out what order uh, of place, what flags, what tokens you will pursue, uh, when to time the buying of the stocks. In in that respect, it's more sophisticated, uh, but also harder to get into and Because what you're trying to remember are not specific actions, but relationships between those actions uh, and, and the choices that have to be made. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, definitely. One of the um, things that... Okay, so here's another um, downside to this game. I'm not sure this game's in print anymore. This was a Stronghold game. Um uh, I remember when it came out in 2014, there was a lot of great buzz about it. I can remember um, trying to get the game at Gen Con and we, going by the Stronghold booth and having Steve Bonacore literally laughing Tom and my faces when we showed up there. I think on like Saturday morning to see if they still had a copy of Panamax. And I think they had been sold out for, you know, since Thursday in the con. Um but like, this is a game that I probably would put in my top 20 list. It did make some of the game brainers top 20 list. Unfortunately, like I think my top 20 list has expanded to about 50 games, but like, I do think of this as a top 20 game. And like, and I think you're the way you put it of like, this is such a good game brain game that I, I want to urge people to go out. And if you can get a copy of this game, you should, because it may not really exist anymore. This falls into my mind of a game like Demacher or Tribune, that has gotten a re-release by Spielworks recently. Of like, this is a game that has not been fully appreciated. It deserves a new edition. Although the artwork is gorgeous, I think the the map and the look of this game is really, really fantastic. Um, yeah, just
1: a new printing will be fine. Doesn't have to yeah, be just me. a
0: new printing by by somebody w- would would be fine. And I do wonder why this game wasn't has it done more i think it's you know it's in the like 500s or 600s on the bgg list like I, to me this is clearly a top 100 game it may even be a top 20 game for me um in terms of my preferences but i don't know why this one didn't do better
1: i i i think uh, reviewing this game is important for me as a game brain group member uh for for two reasons Uh, One, um, I think it's possible this game did not do well in its initial release because it's slightly different in every respect. Because uh, the rules and the mechanisms are novel enough so so that uh, the cops don't really do it justice. Uh, You you know, that people who are into... 18 XS or 18xx or Age of Steam they have so many other options and it's hard to communicate why this one is different and, 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 and why in a lot of respects it's not necessarily better although I think it's better uh, at least than 18xx uh, I know I'll be lambasted for that by Jennifer and rightly so uh, but is just such a nice package very hard, I think, for people to communicate a game that's a great package, uh, a, a, a when the individual components are tough to tough to comp to other games. If this was an 18XX game, in some ways, people could say yes, this is like the, the best entry level 18XX. But since it's on its own, uh, it 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 uh, uh, it's difficult to do. A second reason, though, that I feel it was necessary to review it and tell people about it is that we don't, like, as a player, I personally, and I feel like we Game Brainers as a group, we don't just want to bring back a classic. We want more games like this. Hmm. I feel that this is an archetype for a game that we need more of. We need more interesting, tactically complex games that play in two hours. For me, this is the golden grail should be the golden <laughs> grail. Uh, right. A meaty 3.5 to 3.75 PGA weight. Interesting, well-executed, polished uh, game with really good art for that plays in two hours.
0: Yeah, and that nice that nice marriage between the theme and the mechanisms, kind of like throughout, like the yes, it's a, and, it's and a, the, pretty, ele- it's a pretty elegant, pretty elegant game.
1: Yes, and, and again, barrage that we've reviewed, of course, Alubari, that I hope we review this round, mm-hmm. are very much games that fit that description. But they are few and far between, and there's fewer, there are fewer of them that, that I feel I can explain. Like, why aren't there more games like this? Why isn't this the standard?
0: Well, I wonder, I want, here, let's, let's talk about that because I think like, is I'm, what I'm wondering is like, is this the flip side of your and Tom's dislike of fantasy themes? Because like there's a fantasy themes tend to do pretty well. And like, is the theme of, Hey, it's the Panama canal game. Is that just deeply unsexy to some people I mean I maybe that answers itself the Panama Canal is not d- a deeply sexy theme you know i don't is that is that the issue uh
1: perhaps uh, but the feedback that I often get uh, on our Facebook page on discord when I just talk to people at, at cons uh is that We don't care what the game is about. We don't care about the art. We don't care about the theme. We are serious gamers. And we want mechanisms. And more than anything else, we want meaty, meaningful decisions. We want choices that we really have to think about. Here it is. (laughs) (laughs) In two hours. <laughs> uh, with 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 everything, all the pieces fitting together, <laughs> something that a first time player like Matt Patterson can enjoy, something that slightly more experienced like we can enjoy, a players like we can enjoy, um, and, and and maybe the serious uh, gamer. Also, once a game that takes up five hours uh, of their Saturday or five mm, hours.
0: Yeah, I think this Saturday. is a mis- like, I think it is a little bit of a mystery. Like I just feel like this one should have done a lot better, especially as our hobby matures and people have played more games. Like this is the kind of game that I th- think more people will settle on once they've graduated, you know, past a lot of the you know the gateway games. Like this is where you should end up. This is an absolute classic.
1: Snatch it, snap it up if you see it. And in general, I feel we should all demand more games like this. The all my my biggest complaint is if the hundred minute play time on the box were actually two hours, one hundred twenty minutes, uh, this game would be close to perfect.
0: All right, let's get to our member segment. I think, um, Dimitri, you and I wanted to kind of just revisit um, the concept of metagaming that Tom raised last week and uh, maybe pick at it a little bit and expand on what Tom was saying last week and maybe even identify like little areas where we may disagree with him a little bit or at least the way it operates within our group. So metagaming... What do you, what, what, explain to our listeners what you think we're talking, what we're talking about when we talk about metagaming. Uh,
1: So Tom presented metagaming as entirely player versus player, as a way for one individual player to use social skills or knowledge of the game to persuade another player to act in a way that's beneficial or advantageous to uh the first player or or somehow incapacitates a third player. Uh, for me, uh, for Game Brain, uh, we also uh, uh, think of metagaming as a group meta, uh, as a shared understanding that we all have and that we all communicate to each other. Uh, not just at any individual game or any individual game night. But over the many game nights and years that we've spent together playing games, uh, there's an ethos involved. There's a group overarching set of strategies involved. Uh, I genuinely believe, and I know for me personally, that the lessons I take with me from game night and use in the rest of my life during meetings, meetings, uh, during challenges, during tests, uh, during performing tasks, they come from this shared understanding, this group meta, not from any individual tactic or game.
0: I guess the thing when I was listening to this with with Tom, first off, I just questioned like, is this even the right term here? And I don't, and I don't know if it is metagaming has some specific meanings in some different communities. For example, you know, I played a lot of game of Thrones and you can talk about your meta as like, this is your understanding among your group about how a certain game is to be played. And like, we definitely have a quote unquote meta when it comes to Avalon and things that we think we know based upon hundreds of plays of the game. And this is why going and playing tournaments against people from different areas and different groups and their own metas is a great way to get better at games because you can be operating under poor uh, assumptions. So then in addition to that, like for in role-playing, if you talk about metagaming, this is definitely a negative thing because you're talking about using like real life knowledge or things that your character wouldn't know in order to make decisions in a game. So in a sense, like metagaming it's, it's like, it's It's not just breaking character. It's almost like cheating that you're, you're, or like, you know something about who's running the game and then you're using that knowledge into the, the way that you make player decisions. So like, if you were in a role playing context and someone says, Dimitri, you're metagaming, That's definitely a criticism. And I think what we're trying to do a little bit with what Tom was talking about is rescue what he was talking about with metagaming. Because I think we're clearly against the idea of, you know, he joked that metagaming was the dark art. But I think the last thing, like we're definitely not in favor of bringing social pressures to bear on new players in order to win the game. That is we are certainly not in favor of that. And that's not it. And I don't think that's even what we're talking about.
1: Our group meta for me is about making everyone a better player. Uh, because when everyone is a better player, victories are more meaningful when they happen because you uh, you beat a, a good player rather than a newbie. Uh, and even losing has, uh, rewards because you've learned something. You've gotten information that you can use in other places. It is general information. It, it's meta. It's above, around, below the board. Uh, it's not embedded in the board. These are lessons that I can apply elsewhere. Uh, uh, lessons in group dynamics, lessons in how to get along, lessons in persuasion, Mm -hmm. uh, lessons in how to figure out what other people's motives are, um, and lessons uh, about how to solve puzzles uh, because life is full of puzzles. And I have three examples,
0: very recent ones. Too soon, too soon. Well, let, let's get to the examples uh, later if 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 I can impose a little bit of uh, of control of control here in the host because I, I do want to get to those, but I, I want to s- stick to kind of still setting this up and exploring this term if you'll if you'll indulge me. Of I think one of, one of the things that I think Tom may have even referred to this, and maybe this is a way of tying it back to like the term metagamings maybe it's origins in RPGs is I think Tom used the example of diplomacy as a game of like, once you've played diplomacy, it changes the way you play every other game. So like once you've played diplomacy, you realize, Oh, I can always be negotiating with my fellow players. A particular, a particular rule set does not need to be, giving me permission or have specific mechanisms in place for me to be socially negotiating with other players. And like, that's a big revelation. It changes the way you play other games. I think for the better, like, especially in our group, we are emphasizing the the social aspects of these games anyway. So, you know, suddenly opening other things open to negotiation, I think some people may view that as manipulation, whereas I think we feel like, oh, we're actually like getting to the game that we really want to play, which is a more social game, a game that's not so heads down to kind of use Tom's term about like the initial levels of play that you have with the game you want. And you're also pointing out like we want to get quicker to mastery. Like an important thing with the group is getting everyone up to speed so we can kind of like play a better game so it's both like let's play a more masterful game but like let's also play a game that's more social and more um and more interactive in terms of the players themselves but it is in a sense like it is it does fit into that role-playing definition a little bit of metagaming in that you are bringing something to a game that may not have been explicitly permitted In in the game in its original design, and like with us, we like we maybe we're too free in our permission to say no, no, no. We we're always willing to talk and negotiate, and uh, and have conversations about the state of the game mid game. Like we're we're comfortable with that.
1: We we don't just talk to other players about what they should do. We also talk to other players about what we're doing. Paul is masterful at this. David Gillison does it all the time. Tom even does it. Uh, You do it. Where we discuss what we are doing, we talk through our talk it out. We talk it out about our own turn. What am I doing here? Uh, I'm here. I'm planning to do this. Uh, It may affect you. It may affect you.
0: Here's what I'm Uh, considering. Am I thinking about this the right way?
1: Yes, we talk What, what should I be
0: thinking about at this stage in 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 the game, you know?
1: Yeah, and that doesn't just reveal your own thought patterns, it invites other people to comment. Uh, and of course, it invites other people to make your play better. But talking through your own turn also makes whoever listening, whoever is listening at that moment gives them the opportunity to improve to improve uh, their play. Uh, if if I'm seeing that you are considering doing this, I'm asking myself, well, why haven't I thought about it in my own game? Can I do something similar later? Can I do something similar when I play this game again? Can I do something similar when I play a completely different game? I, I, is there a principle, a general principle um, that you're invoking here that I can apply? later that I can apply other other instances.
0: Yeah. One concept that I think might be helpful here, because I think like we're, we're going to kind of dance around this concept of metagaming or, or even the subject that we're talking about here and, and kind of pick at it a little bit, but like a concept that occurred to me that kind of folds in here is the concept of finite games versus infinite games that um, orig- this was like an idea that was originally kind of put forward by a religious scholar named James Carse. And um, the idea is like generally we conceive of games, we play them finitely, which is like we're playing this game and you're going to play it until somebody wins. And like that's the goal of the game is to play it to win. Infinite games are games that don't actually have endings. And uh, like I think this has been used by the business world to approach you know, the long term life of your company is that, you know, you shouldn't see things in terms of zero sum, you should be thinking of the infinite game, because the infinite game continues until you just can't play it anymore. Like you, the, the condition of the infinite game is, um, is defined by when people have to drop out. And you have to drop out because you run out of resources or frankly, like you die. You die, you run out of resources, you run out of time or you simply don't have the will to continue anymore. But I was thinking about you know this concept of, of metagaming and our group. And I think we are in a sense playing an infinite game. The infinite game is game night. The infinite game is this community that we have around our game night, and I think our interest is in continuing this, and okay. so, and so we're like inviting people in. We're nurturing the the group, and a lot. I think a lot of the stuff that happens with this is about ma- just sustaining the game. The goal is to continue to play, and no individual game is going to, you know, should should di- we don't want an in- an individual game to ever damage the long term game. But we are also playing the long longer game, an infinite game. Does that make
1: sense? One of the the terms you use is Mm -hmm. zero-sum. Almost all finite games, unless they're co-ops, but that's a special category, uh, are zero-sum games, where they're going to be winners and and losers. Uh, But the long game is not zero-sum. In the long game, everybody benefits. In the long game, when it's done well, when it's done correctly... Even under evil capitalism, with companies competing with each other, there's growth. Everybody can grow. Uh, And we can all grow as players, and we can all grow as human beings. And and to that, I want to add something that I personally believe, that even finite games cannot really be played well without a group meta. Because for me, I believe every game, every finite game is incomplete. There are certain rules uh, that are like basic codified tactics. But without players bringing an additional understanding of what they can do with those rules without players improvising new rules, improvising new tactics, improvising strategies, the game is not going to mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unless it's a very trivial game like uh, like Chutes and Ladders. Unless it's a game where really there is no choice and the game is playing itself. We don't like those games. We don't like games that are complete Uh, And and will happen without anything that we can contribute to it. Uh, We like games where we make meaningful choices. We have strategies. We have tactics. Um, And then the only question is, uh, am I only going to use my own tactics? Is my meta only going to be based on my personal knowledge? Or am I going to use all the knowledge that's available uh, with the people who are playing the game with me? And are they going to be willing to share their knowledge just like I'm willing to share mine unless I get what Paul calls shark eyes and things like that? I can win this, so I should shut up. And don't anybody pay any attention to me. (laughs) I can win this.
0: No but that's right I think that's a great example the the sh- the shark eyes are an or ex- or like someone has shark eyes when they have focused on the finite game and the the intermediate goal the immediate goal of winning a, a game and and that's why like I think I I I wanted to really revisit the thing you know that Tom mentioned last week just because I almost felt like oh this is 100 per 180% wrong you know, like the, the, the stuff that's operating here is, is actually about should be about long term community and friendship. And what are we really getting out of these interactions? And so if the takeaway of like the highest level of competition was, you know, some kind of, you know, social manipulation in order to achieve a short term win, like that's exactly the opposite of what. I think we're trying to do with table talk and uh, but I still, I also kind of get where some critics of this and I think Jennifer aired a, you know, a little bit of criticism of this, of a feeling that like talk that is quote unquote outside of the game, like that might be viewed as unwelcome or unwanted by some people who just want to play their own game. And, you know, thank you very much. Please keep your opinions to your, yourself. (laughs) I think that, but I think that those kind of moments also they happen among people that haven't are that don't already have a certain level of social bond that already exists, right? Like when you have a lot of kind of good understanding and 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 history with people, then you you don't you don't need that kind of hey you know keep your opinions to yourself moments so so much. I do wonder if part of if there's, a da- if there's a little bit of danger of this kind of insiderness, of like us knowing each other so well, like does that become a barrier to entry for new people joining our group or, or people that are newer to our group feeling completely welcome? I, do, I do feel concerned about that. Like, and, and that's something and that we should examine.
1: And it's up to us to make new people welcome. We've had new members join. One of the things that strikes me uh, is uh, since we've been doing the podcast and really since like two or three years before the podcast began we haven't really had anyone quit
0: oh would we know it
1: <laughs> uh, no no but, but I'm, I, I, I'm serious right now uh, we have regularly 8 to 12 people yep at our game nights uh, and I can't think of anyone who stormed out in a huff except me <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: I've I've had my moments too.
1: Yeah, but 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 then we come back, uh, and we've had uh, uh, amazing, wonderful new members uh, jo- join us. Uh, so I would, without patting myself too strongly on the back, I, I think our group meta is to include other people. I don't want to use the word inclusive, yeah, because that has other connotations. That I cannot claim uh for myself, and that nobody can claim for themselves by yeah. definition uh but welcoming to 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 just a new member,
0: yeah, I think we need to be um open minded and, uh, and, and and what I wonder if we're really doing that as as well as we can um like one of the, like this is a i don't this is not perfectly articulated but like i know i have been frustrated that for example um when some people aren't don't enjoy avalon that's frustrating to me because i feel like oh that's how you really get to know us well and so like when jennifer says i don't want to play those kind of games that is really frustrating to me because I feel like, no, come game with us. Be one of us, you know, like one of us, jo- you know, join us. And I'm, and I am concerned that when she opts out, cause it's not for her in, in, not, and not wanting to play Avalon like that does become and like a barrier to fitting in. Well, especially cause if she's, if she's expressing concern that the the table talk is not, Something that she's enjo- like that she's enjoying the vibe of other groups more. I just wonder how we address that. How do how do we? Because I don't. Well, I'm not sure I know how to turn it off.
1: <laughs> without uh, getting too personal, I, I feel for me, I get to know Jennifer uh, more as a person when I play with her on her own turf. Uh, she Jennifer is uh-huh. her own solar yep. system uh she's hosted uh a game group uh that I feel is more permeable than ours uh that has more people mm-hmm. coming in and, and others leaving she's hosted for over three decades uh twice as long as as we've been playing together um, so uh for her, she has her own group meta uh and when i go play with her in her house uh with 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 uh her players her regulars i understand a little more of, of, about what her expectations are
0: we should hear from jennifer <laughs> <laughs> on exactly what, what, what she thinks on this. Did you want to go over some examples of metagaming that kind of illustrates some of the stuff yes, that we're talking yes, about? Yes,
1: some examples of group meta. The first one of them comes from a game of Pitch Card, which is the first play, uh, game uh, Tom made sure we played uh, uh, after uh, getting together for the first time in person uh, after we have been vaccinated. And and pitch card is a flicking game. It's not a game of tactics or or strategy. It is a children's game of literally flick flicking um, uh, wooden bits of that represent cars on the track and and, and getting taking turns, getting across the finish line. Um, And uh, uh, on that glorious game of pitch card. it came down to a photo finish between me and friend of the podcast, friend of Game Jonathan Grotenstein. Uh, and when my turn came, it was a do-or-die moment uh, because I could win on that turn, but if I didn't, it would be Jonathan's uh, victory to take. And, and I, I, as I formed my fingers for the perfect flick and approached uh, the, the the card token, Paul started talking smack uh to me. Uh and, and he said, Dimitri, uh, are you gonna blow this? <laughs> are you gonna succeed? He got to my head, and I did blow it. <laughs> and John won the game. Uh and this is a perfect example of a group meta. Now Paul has the reputation of being the game breaker. Paul has the reputation of cruelty. But what was he doing? Uh, You have to picture in your head a group of people seeing each other as a group for the first time in over a year, and we're all standing over a game that has no meaning, watching each other flick our fingers. What Paul did is he made that final turn really fun for everybody. Mm -hmm. He made made it uh, weighty and significant. What happened next? He made it into a story. Everybody was laughing, and most importantly, everybody was paying attention. Uh, Everybody felt like this was finally worth our time. Now, it also made it fun for me and for Jonathan had I been able to overcome uh, Paul's uh, talk, then it would have been a greater victory because it wouldn't have been just a victory of uh, uh, fingertip eye coordination. It, it was a psychological victory over my own demon standing next to me. Uh, but my, uh, my defeat at the hands of Paul and Jonathan Jonathan won. Um, he hasn't seen us in in over a year. This was his first time in game night. This was his first time socializing with uh, somebody outside his family in over a year. Uh, so it just gave an additional meaning uh, and made it fun for everyone
0: involved.
1: Now, so let me let me let
0: me so let me reframe that just a little bit. So oh. on a very surface level. You were the victim here. You were the victim of Paul's metagaming. Uh, Yes. However, your perspective on this thing is actually what Paul did was elevate a moment of no significance into a valuable memory. uh, And part of our ongoing story of our gaming group that is worth remembering and that you have positive feelings about.
1: Absolutely, and because I have a shared group meta with Paul, I have an an understanding of what he's doing in that moment. He is attacking me, but there's a higher purpose behind it. And my history with Paul in general, but specifically my history with Paul at game night, uh, makes it abundantly clear uh what his goal is. Uh and uh being the brunt of that particular nudge uh, is all part of the dance. It it, 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 it it it's like I could have seen oh look I'm performing I'm I, I'm victorious I could I could have a victory at fingers th- Flicking and oh, somebody just tripped me and I fell on my face. But the group meta makes it very obvious that I'm not falling on my face, I'm tumbling. Uh, it, it, to the laughter and applause uh, of, of, of everyone. Yes, the,
0: the fact that Paul it, feels it's worth his time to mess with you here is actually an indication of like, that's an indication of belonging. Yes. It, right? Like that, 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 that you're important, important enough to, 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 uh, to, to have this kind of uh moment with, maybe we're giving it too much credence. Give me, you, give me another example of, you said you had three examples of, of metagaming that are kind of illustrating the points here. What's number two? Uh,
1: so There's a game we sometimes uh, play and talk about called Avalon. Uh, yes. and, and it's a game about uh, lying. And it's a game about concealing your character and your true intentions. Um, and, uh, in isolation, I developed a tell um, where I turn bright red if I'm a special, uh, either a spy or, or, or a special good character uh, in the game of Avalon. And Paul noticed it, and he announced it to everyone. Look, at the, look everyone, Dmitri's turning red. He's a spy. Now, again, he read my tell. He could have kept it to himself. Uh, his announcement of it to the group, though, is an attempt to make everybody a better player. Me, mm-hmm. by making me aware of the tell and, and, and
0: fix it if you control. can, yeah, yeah.
1: But everybody else by alerting them that they should be paying attention to other people.
0: He's they, put, right, you know, he's putting them on the same level as himself, right? And in a sense, he's he's foregoing his own advantage here right. in order to share it with the group
1: he's forgoing his advantage in other games. Now, he could have said, I'm going to keep it to myself, and then in future games, uh, I will know if Dimitri is a spy. But had he done that, what if in the future game, we were both on the same side? Then that would be hurt. Keeping it to himself, without giving me an opportunity to fix it, would be hurting him. And also if he can always tell by the color of my face that I'm a spy, what kind of victory is that? Mm -hmm. That, that, That's an easy victory. Uh, And an easy victory is not significant. It would be like uh, a a marathon runner uh, at peak condition running against a 10-year-old. It's not meaningful. It's not...
0: uh, Right.
1: Interesting. It's not significant. This needs
0: to be addressed so we can play a better game and, and have the kind of interactions we want, even. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, and, and it works on a competitive level and also works on a general life level because now I know that I shouldn't be turning red when uh, I'm trying to cheat someone in in life, not, 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 not just a game way
0: So do you feel. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Something like tells. Is, a, is an interesting subject because it feels a little bit adjacent to like mastery of the game, but, but I think I kind of, I buy that. Um, do you have, um, do you have a third example? Uh,
1: I do have a third example because of course these things have to come in threes. Uh, and this is a much more fraught and nuanced uh, and, and, and conflicted example than the previous story. Uh, we were playing a, a game that was mentioned earlier in this episode called Quest. We were playing uh, four, four, four play, a four player version of Quest, uh, including myself, Paul, and, and somebody I'll call Player X. Uh, I, I don't want to uh, divul- divulge their identity. Um, I, I don't want to divulge their gender. Uh, they may be someone mentioned on this podcast before, maybe not. Uh, Player X, Uh, when we finished our our four-player game of Quest, uh, well, I want to preface it by saying that we're playing Quest in order to figure out the game. Uh, An individual's victory in Quest right now is meaningless. We are playing to figure out if the game has meaningful victory conditions, has meaningful tactics, how can we... Edited. edit it, what, what, what individual characters should we include. We're exploring it. We're, we're not trying to beat each other. Um, and um, Player X, after the game was over, said, oh, I just figured out something about the game. And I said, oh, wh- what did you figure out? <laughs> this is very exciting because I don't understand it at all, or I don't even know if there is a game here. Uh, and player X said, "Well, well, I, I'm not going to tell you, because that would be giving up a future advantage."
0: Uh, got it. Got it.
1: So player X does not want to participate in 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 the group meta the way that I would, and I would expect other people to do. And then Paul started talking to. Player X, and that led to an hour discussion. I happen to take it, so I, I'll play it for, for you right now. But, but in, in summary, there's a deeper conflict uh, in the group meta between Player X and what our group meta developed into. Uh, because our group meta in games like Quest, games like Avalon, uh, and many, many other games is heavily mathematical. There's a lot of math. Not surprising. Paul is a rocket scientist. He's an engineer. Uh, uh, I have a science uh, degree from college. Uh, Jennifer uh, worked for JPL and NASA. We're very comfortable with math. Uh, and we tend to be have a mathematical understanding of games like Avalon, where we see how people vote and how they actually pass or fail Uh, the missions, and we base a a lot of our conclusions on that mathematical understanding. Player X is very intuitive and he has or she has a very good read on other people's tells. Uh, They don't want to share...
0: And to Player X, that's what the game is.
1: That's what the game is.
0: yeah, is Yeah.
1: And they feel that uh, the math that we are using as a group is imposing a certain way of playing the game, uh, of playing social deduction games, that Player X feels constrains them. That's not what the games are about for him. They they don't want to reduce Avalon to chess. They want to play a social game. They want to make reads of other people's tells. And then Paul made the comment, okay, but your, t- your reads are not 100% correct all the time. So how do I move you off an incorrect read? How do I persuade you to change? How, how do I make you change your mind? In some respects, this is what Tom's talking about, right? Uh, because Tom says metagaming is persuading somebody else to change their mind right? And, and and Paul is doing the same thing, but in a slightly different way, because uh, in his position, Player X doesn't have to use mathematics, uh, doesn't have to use the group meta, uh, but certainly it would be better if they could understand it so Paul could communicate with them uh, if they are wrong or be able to persuade them to make an incorrect move if if they're on different sides. But there's a rift. Uh, And I've been talking about group meta as uh, an absolute good, but group meta can lead to a conflict if somebody feels uh, 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 drawn into it against their will or co-opted. Have that play
0: co-opted uh, into it. Yes, that that's the perspective. Yeah. I really like this example because I think, A, I think it's interesting, like, the the, the framing of, like, you're playing the infinite game here, the, which is one that I'm kind of thrown onto the metagaming idea, but I think you're playing the infinite game here when you're having this conversation. Like, the game has, the the literal game has ended, but you're continuing to play the game. In this conversation and the and the game you're playing is also about how do we continue to have the group how do we continue to play and i think like part of the reason that this was such an important conversation for you and everyone in, involved in it is it kind of does go to this question of like how do we continue to play it is actually a crisis to paul if this player is, is simply going to shut down and not be persuadable or approachable under his understanding of what the game should be. Um, by taking this point of view, that's going to cut off play. That's going to possibly cut off the group. So, um, so that, like this conversation is almost like it's attempting to mend a wound a, l- a little bit in it. And so it's not exactly criticism. It's, it's, um, Try, trying to like it's, it's the, the weird thing to me though is like do you have to like view things like the pack in order to fit into the pack and so i'm sympathetic for somebody who just says i don't see it the way you do and like that should be enough and then again i kind of brings up like is that end up becoming like a barrier to belonging in in a gaming group I think that this, the reason that this one also sticks with you is like, I think the danger in player X's perspective is that it's possibly not generous and we want to be generous with each other in, in gaming, like reserving an advantage for yourself that you're not sharing or an insight into a game that you're not sharing. I think that goes against the spirit of, of what we think our game group should be about.
1: Uh, yes. And I, I say that, uh, I fully agree with you knowing that ultimately it's a selfish uh, approach for me personally. It is to my advantage to learn from other players. Uh, And and so I'm willing to be open to share because I get information from 10 or 12 other people uh, as a payback. You know, I only give out my own uh, information, my own discoveries, my own strategies, but I get 10 times that in return if everybody shares equally.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I can also, I have to be sympathetic to somebody who doesn't want to share. Right. Uh, especially if what they're getting from me is not valuable to them. Mm. Or if they don't see the value of my math, uh, or, 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 or or my coffee right. knowledge, or, or my my Rosen cavalier, uh, you, you, you know plot. Uh, so uh,
0: no, that so- makes sense. And like part of it is a like it is a legitimate thing like to criticize like because we've heard this right of like people talking about our meta with Avalon and criticizing it. I think that's totally valid. And and it's hard for us to evaluate like where we might be wrong. But I think we like, we have to accept that in, and this is like talking specifically about our understanding of a game. Like we should be open to, we could improve. I think we definitely know we could improve. I think the problem a lot of times is when we get these criticisms, I feel like we have very good reasons for why they are misunderstanding some of things that we've kind of accepted as good foundational, good foundations in playing the game.
1: Having accepted that and having said that I, I will unequivocally state that our group meta is the reason I come to game night. Uh, Because I can play games on the computer. I can play teacher, you know, I can go down the teacher rabbit hole and play Sixteen hours a day uh, uh, until I had to get treatment. Um, I can see um, everyone in the group individually, for dinner, go movies, go, go have lunch. Uh, we I have a friendship and a relationship sometimes pre-existing, some, sometimes formed during game night with everyone involved. Uh, but the group meta of game brain. Uh, which is this combination of uh, social interaction and math and tactics and game strategy that I find to be particularly useful uh, to, to apply in my life, uh, mm-hmm. to focus on a task, to have a strategic understanding uh, uh, of a complicated life situation, a complicated business situation. Uh, All of this is so useful to me that it's the thing, the unique thing that I cannot get uh, anywhere else. Uh, And I'm very jealous of it and I'm very protective of it. um, Even as I realize that often I disrupt it. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm not a good enough person, (laughs) Uh, you, you know, to bear the burden because I sometimes get angry and frustrated myself, because sometimes I get shock eyes and want to win, I benefit from it so much uh, that, that it's the important thing to me.
0: I hear you. I do wonder whether we're again kind of getting squishy with the term metagaming or, or meta, because it sounds like what you're describing is actually like our group's culture. Like maybe that's too loaded of a word, but I think you're more describing our shared, if we have a shared value system, which I think we do, I think that's what you're describing. Is that our meta? That's what you mean by our meta.
1: Uh, sure, our group dynamics, but I don't think it would have developed if we weren't playing competitive games.
0: Fair. But I feel I, like I, we're I, also we're, a, we're we've come a long way now in our ex- exploration of this term from where we started in Tom and Jennifer's episode in which Tom is describing level 4 gaming the highest level of gaming is meta gaming like that we're yeah, we're in a different space now
1: Yeah but we still consider meta gaming or at least I still consider metagaming the highest level of gaming
0: Uh-huh okay the long Fair.
1: game the infinite game uh or or at least the incomplete game the mm-hmm. boundless game it, it, it just that for me it's so much more than the the narrow aspect uh, of of manipulation uh that that Tom explored in I, the episode
0: i i totally agree and i'm glad we had a chance to kind of uh revisit this we probably can't bring like any kind of crystal clear clarity, but I think we did kind of get to more of what we're, we're talking about. I don't think we are going to have time for a um, game sommelier this week, but Dimitri, thank you. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot of kind of um, warm fuzzies. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I think you, like you've re you've reaffirmed in my mind, you know, uh like, some of the some of the good things I really get out of, you know, hanging out with this group of friends and spending uh, time with them. And I don't, I, I don't think this should be a, like pat ourselves on the back thing. It's more just like, yeah, that's that really like that's the thing I want to get across about, like, quote unquote, metagaming is is like, no, there's, we're, this really is more about like um, what we get out of our friendships and spending time together and sustaining that that actually is like a, the core value here. And that's why I thought it was so important that we addressed that this week.
1: Uh, same here. And I'm so happy I got the opportunity to share my thoughts about something so important to me.
0: You have been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, and Trey Alsop. Thanks to Edamaros Peleg for our art. And thank you to Daedalus for our incredible music. You know them as Alfred. More on DataList at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening and go play some games with friends.
1: And make some friends with metagames.